Now turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. This evening we hope to finish the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 12, verses 54 through 59 tonight. We'll stand together now and read from God's Word, beginning with verse 54 of Luke chapter 12. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here again we have an admonition or a rebuke that comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must say the meek and the mild Jesus can be condemnatory and has been in the last two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. But you need to understand his audience to receive this, to understand it. This was a people who had access to the Word of God for a thousand years. They didn't necessarily have copies of their homes as we have had for roughly the last 500 years. But they had the Word of God in, in, in the synagogues. So they could go to the synagogue, they could hear the Word, and there was a fair amount of memorization that went on. They also pretended to be religious. So Jesus is addressing a lot of hypocrisies, refer, referring to the hypocrites here. Remember, he went after the lawyers and the Pharisees when he was invited to the Pharisees' home in Luke chapter 11, and uh, there we receive the woes. But these were the hypocrites. They were re- pretending to be religious. They believed that they worshipped God. They kept the Sabbath meticulously. They tithed to the mint, anise, and cumin plants. But they missed the weightier matters of the law. They missed the gospel. They missed faith. They missed mercy. They missed justice. They missed the core matters. So this is hypocrisy. The hypocrisy is to maintain an appearance of religiosity, but denying the power thereof or the core of it. So that's why it's important, as I see it, that we believe the Word of God, we believe the core doctrines of the Word of God. I fear that within conservative circles, we become very good with understanding and saying that we believe certain distinctives, but we don't really believe in Jesus. We believe the Westminster Confession of Faith, or we believe the Five Points of Calvinism, but we don't really believe in Jesus. We've missed the core, or we've missed the trunk. Our, our core belief is not there, although we perceive ourselves to be conservatives. So Jesus is going after hypocrisy and external religiosity while they missed the real message. So he brings the hard message to the crowd. In this case, you see that he has turned his attention from his disciples to the crowds. So it's important when you read the Gospels, you keep that straight. Are you addressing the Pharisees here? Is he addressing his disciples or is he addressing the, the larger hoi polloi, or the crowds that are around him? So th- those are the important um, contextual 
questions we need to be answering. He warns them. He rebukes them. As we find also in John 6, remember the crowd that collected after the feeding of the 5,000, and he turned off the crowds, then turned to his disciples and said, will you leave me also? So John 6 would be an example, a very offensive language he uses towards the crowds, Matthew 23, towards the Pharisees. We find these, this hard message coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about the gentleness of Christ, please understand, I think sometimes this is misunderstood, but the gentleness of Jesus is not that he, he doesn't kick tables over in the temple and bring the woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, uh, but it is that he is, is kind and gentle to those who are humble, but he is hard on those who are proud. So he adjusts. To be gentle, according to the biblical word gentleness, is to dial in the right amount of pressure to the given situation, to the particular people that are there listening to the message. So that's what how our Lord handles himself in his ministry while he was here. So now let's look at the context of this immediate passage. Go back to verses 49 to 53. It was treated last week. Just, just glance over these verses one more time. Here Jesus told his disciples, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, a mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Here Jesus is forecasting what will happen, that he has come and brought the message of the gospel. It will be a dividing message. And he, I believe, is prophesying a coming judgment upon Israel and tension that will happen between families uh, within the Jewish community and that there will be, in, a, in, in concomitance with this judgment, a persecution of his own people. So these are, this is the context uh, where, wherein Jesus has brought this. The judgment will involve division, the painful consequence of persecution of Christians, and that persecution of Christians will bring judgment to a head. Typically, persecution fills up the measure of God's wrath upon a nation and upon the world. And that is what happened between eighty thirty and eighty seventy. Please understand that the judgment that Jesus is prophesying, is prophesied throughout his ministry, to come upon Jerusalem is the worst judgment that the world had ever seen, arguably. Especially in that it came upon his own people, who were hypocrites and would not receive the gospel message. So these are hard words. And Jesus here in this passage, is hoping and desiring that this will come quickly. He wants to see that judgment will come. He seems to have a commitment to judgment upon the people of Israel in this verse, verse 49. But now we move on to this message that he brings to the multitudes. And here he convicts the multitudes that they have not been able to discern the times. And here's the point that I want to make of this. A faithless, a willfully ignorant, and hypocritical people cannot discern the times. They could not see that the kingdom of God was coming. They could not see the judgment of God coming upon the nation. Some commentators 
We'll say this primarily refers to the coming of Jesus and the bringing in, or the ushering in of his kingdom. Others refer to his judgment soon to come because that is the immediate context. But either way, these people could not see it. And Jesus is admonishing them for it. Now, they had access to God's word. And the point here is that it should have known the, the trouble that Israel was in. John the Baptist had already come and, and brought his convicting message. And Acts was at the root, judgment soon to come upon this people. So it was a convicting message. And sometimes the church does bring a convicting message and urges the people to repentance and to faith and to receive the gospel. And we do that in this church. But these people had access to the gospel in terms of the coming of Christ, in terms of the Old Testament presentation of it and the prophecies concerning him. So they had some some of that mercy and that grace that God has extended to them for a thousand years. They should have had some insight into God's word and God's law and the condition of their own hearts. The Lord faults them for their own blindness. See, people harden their own hearts. We can say that Satan hardens their hearts, and sometimes even we find that God hardens hearts, the case of Pharaoh. But, but always there is fault to be found with with us, when we, we aren't receptive of the word, there's this resistance to the word, this, this tendency to, for our minds to wander. And, and we may say, well, that's just because the speaker is boring, or it's just because it's hot in here, or we could point our finger to lots of things, but God doesn't do that. He faults you. If you're not receiving the message, he faults you for hardening your own heart against the word, for closing your own eyes, stuffing up your own ears. There's a willfulness to the rejection of the word. And, and, and so they, they, they didn't receive the word. Now, as, as we receive the convicting word of God, it shines into our own hearts. Now, that means our hearts must be open to it, to reception of that light shining in upon us, and, and it convicts us. We, we realize our guiltiness before God and, and that we are ourselves subject to his judgment. But our Lord could see what was coming. He, he could see that the first century Jews were cruising for a bruising, so to speak. That's what my mother used to say sometimes. She said, you're cruising for a bruising. Does anybody ever say that nowadays? Your mom used to say it. I think they said it in the last generation, Yeah. And, and this is, I think, precisely the message that Jesus is bringing. You're cruising for a bruising. That you need to open your eyes and realize the, the condition that you're in. He says they make prognostications concerning the weather, given the wind direction, the clouds moving in, but they refuse to think spiritually concerning the condition of the heart of the children of Israel in the New Testament and the coming judgment, the imminent judgment of God coming down upon them. Now, more fundamentally, they couldn't make judgments as God makes judgments. And this is the thread that I'm going to take into the last verses of this passage, verses 57 through 59, that Jesus is challenging them to, to judge themselves, to judge the current situation in Israel, and we need to make this application to ourselves too, to make judgments concerning ourselves, concerning our own lives, make judgments concerning our own church, make judgments concerning our nation, 
based upon God's judgments, to see things as God sees things. And so the Jews were incapable of seeing themselves as God sees them. They could not interpret the world as God sees the world. And and yet Jesus is holding us accountable for this. If we have access to the word and we can use the word of God, the law of God, as the eyeglasses, the standard of holiness by which we view the utterly despicable standards of the world around us, then we will conclude that judgment is imminent on this nation. See, that's the argumentation Jesus is using. You can tell that clouds are coming in, the storm is rolling in, and there will be rain, but you cannot make that conclusion concerning the spiritual condition of this nation. That's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. And, you know, Fox News and CNN, I don't know if you still visit Fox News from time. I still do from time. I don't know why I do it, but I do it. I guess I just want to know if the communists have nuked San Francisco or something. You know, I just kind of update on the big news stories. It's something that happened in the last 10 minutes that I'm not aware of. But, but Fox News and CNN do not see the world as God sees it. They, they do not prioritize stories as God would prioritize stories. There's really no warnings concerning the coming, coming judgment on, at foxnews.com. Have you ever noticed that? They're not concerned about the judgment of God. It's not an issue for them. They actually don't consider the issue of abortion that important. They don't consider the issue of sodomy that important. The breakdown of the American family, they don't see that as all that important. They seem to have, make a big deal of immigration and fill in the blank. But they're not important issues. They're insignificant issues. And so if you look through at the world through the eyeglasses of Fox News, you're not going to make judgments as God makes judgments. Fox News and CNN are incompetent to discern between that which is egregious and that which is not, that which is right and that which is wrong. These news sources are actually fairly well useless. But that we, brothers and sisters, need to be in the Word of God and use the Word of God as eyeglasses by which we see the egregiousness of sin and the trouble that this world is in, and perhaps even the trouble that we are in, and our need for a Savior. Oh, that we would see the world and ourselves as God sees us. If the Jews had understood the passion of Isaiah, the commitment to righteousness of the psalmist, the clarity of the law of God depicting the holiness of God, then they would have discerned the times. You, you know, you read Isaiah chapter 1. In fact, I was going to read Isaiah chapter 1. I didn't get a chance. Went to Malachi 1 instead. But you read Isaiah 1, and you see God's condemnation. You read Malachi 1, you see God's condemnation on this, this, this heart that is not into worship. Just not into the worship of God in the first century, or back in the fifth century B.C., but I'd say the same thing could be said in the first century. Malachi was sufficient to condemn and to convict the people of God right into the first century, and they didn't have a passion for God. They didn't love God. God says, I loved you, but you didn't love me. Where's your love for me? What kind of sacrifice of worship are you bringing on a Sunday morning? Where is your heart? Do you really love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I'm not getting it. I'm getting the, the lame, the, 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 you know, just sort of your worst possible offering you could possibly come up with. You wouldn't even give that to your governor, he says there in Malachi chapter 1. So the Jews, they didn't understand the passion of Isaiah. 
the commitment to righteousness of the psalmist. If they had understood these things, they would understand why God would have to send his son. They would have received his son. But see, again, they didn't see that they were in that bad of a shape. They didn't see that God was angry with them. That God was going to subject them again to his judgment as he did in the exile some, four, some 600 years earlier. We must interpret the world as God interprets the world. If the Jews had only understood the precarious situation they were in, within 40 years of being wiped off the map, the wrath of God towards the Jews was just about filled up by now. They should have sensed that. Yeah, they were in bad shape in the 5th century B.C., but, but now is worse than ever. If they could just see that, and they could see that we we're just on, on, on the tippy, tippy tip of falling into God's wrathful judgment against this nation. And by the way, that message is for all of us, isn't it? Because we are, we're all by nature uh, hell-deserving sinners, and we're right there on the cusp of destruction, but that God steps in with his Son and, and brings a Savior for us. But, but they didn't receive his son. They didn't, say they, they didn't see they had a need for his son. The wrath of God towards the Jews was just about filled up, but the love of God came at just the right time to die, to atone, to redeem, to make all things right. If they had discerned the times, if they had discerned their own hearts, they would have seen their need for a Savior from God, the very Son of God. But they just could not discern the times. They could not discern the times. Now, brothers and sisters, I think we have an obligation to discern the times ourselves. Persecution is stepping up, an indication of households set against each other, an indication of God's imminent judgment upon the world. By the way, Christian persecution and judgment upon the world come concomitantly together. There have been respites of persecution throughout church history. There wasn't much persecution of Christians between A.D. 325 and A.D. 1252 when the Inquisition started up. It was about a thousand years of general peace for believers, at least in Europe. I was just reviewing our new copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and looking at you know, persecutions between 400 A.D. and up into 1200 A.D., almost nothing. Very, very short chapters. One or two guys persecuted in that period of time, over a period of a thousand years. Very rare for persecutions to happen. So after the Roman persecutions had subsided and God's judgment upon that terrible empire, there was a relative peace for God's people over a period of a thousand years. Then there was an increase in persecution. It began roughly A.D. 1300 and extended to 1690. And 1690 is the glorious revolution where, praise God, William the Silent's great-grandson took the throne of England. When the Silent's great hero and all of church history. You should read more of his great biography. But, uh, but there was a period of persecution here between 1300 and 1690 that lasted about 390 years where the nations raged against the church of Jesus Christ. They engaged in persecutions in France, Spain, and England under the Stuarts. The Reformation influence in England, the United States, protected God's people around the world uh, for a period of 318 years after that until Barack Obama. I put the, the rise of modern persecution at the inauguration of Barack Obama as President of the United States. Now, I, I, I'm not telling you he's the most evil man who has ever lived. I'm just simply saying it came about persecution against God's people 
uh, rose in the world around 2008. That is the year at which persecution started up full force, and this time the persecution is worldwide. And, and largely because of the state, uh, the United States State Department, and the English State Department, and these other Western State Departments are number one powerless, but they're also not interested in start stopping uh, Christian persecution around the world. So because of the loss of cultural influence in America, because of the breakdown of the Christian faith in the Western world, persecution is as bad as it has been in 320 years at least. Arguably, uh, it is as bad as it's been uh, since, uh, since roughly 325, the year of Constantine. The number of martyrs have increased between 2020 and 21 uh, by 4,700 4, to 5,800, according to opendoors.com. In other words, there were uh, 4,700 martyrdoms in 2020 and 5,800 martyrdoms in 2021. And I trust Open Doors as probably the most accurate numbers. Now, that compares to two martyrs in the 1840s, in, in the decade of the 1840s. In the decade of the 1950s, 16 martyrs found on one list, both Catholic and Protestant, including Jim Elliott. 16 martyrs in the decade of the 1950s. Why? Because the Christian influence that came out of the Reformation was still very strong, again, until... Barack Obama, until the breakdown of the Christian faith in the United States of America, until the Christian churches in America broke down. Then we begin to see a loss of cultural influence and the rise of Barack Obama and persecution worldwide against the church of Jesus Christ. Now again, I don't think we should minimize this. I'm encouraging all of us to not minimize the rise of persecution that I believe may be bringing about a worldwide judgment. If worldwide persecution has engaged since the inauguration of Barack Obama, it is very possible, I believe, that God could bring a worldwide judgment upon the world. The European Gentile world, whom Paul warned in Romans 11, has been clipped from the vine. As we said this morning, the message is the same as it was for the Jews. I bring Romans 11 to bear here. Again, as we discern the times... And Jesus is commanding us to discern the times, and he rebukes us if we refuse to discern the times where we are. And it is a time in which we're dealing with worldwide persecution. It's a time in which we're dealing with the European Gentile world apostatizing from the faith, and it's time for us to be humbled. It's a time for the Pharisees, not to blame the Sadducees, the Republicans to blame the Democrats. The differences are minor. The axe is at the root. Now, what should we do? Repent. All hypocrisy must be rooted out. There comes a point at which gross hypocrisy cannot continue within the church anymore. That's the message we get from Ananias and Sapphira or from Achan in the Old Testament. All hypocrisy must be rooted out. And this is what Jesus is, is addressing in verse 56 of this passage. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? John the Baptist warned that the axe was at the root and the house would be left desolate. True faith cannot tolerate hypocrisy in the church. Whether the faith is reduced to a shallow nothing nominalism, a hallowed-out sentimentality, an emotion-based romanticism, a powerless gospel, or an external legalism, the problem is the same. The faith is gutted of core and appears more as whitewashed sepulchers than a living body. Our hearts seek after truth, 
And our hearts must seek after that truth about ourselves, that truth from God's word about ourselves. Our hearts must commit to thoroughgoing repentance, sound faith, a relentless purging of all hypocrisy from our lives. The order of the day is for the remnant of the faith to purge out the old leaven and keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It means all hypocrisies and secret sins must be uncovered and confessed in the body. That means all of us. We must be more transparent than we've ever been in the church. If we are to humble ourselves and, and be hid in the time of God's judgment, I'm warning the people of God here and everywhere that we must be transparent about our own sins and cry out, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need a blood-earnest cry of these psalms in our own experiences. Amen, brothers and sisters? It isn't enough to destroy just the vile and the refuse with Saul, who left the rest of the Malachites alive. This is the time to cut the agag in pieces. This is not the time to dilute the import of God's law, but rather to resurrect the true intent, as Christ did in his ministry. And then bring the gospel to bear on its full imports. It's no time to go after the external rotten fruits of abortion and homosexuality while ignoring the roots of self-centeredness, idolatry, pride, and ungratefulness within the heart. This needs to be a time for transparency, brutal honesty, walking in the light, confessing real sins, upholding the righteous law of God as the standard. And I'm going after conservatives just for a moment because we just can't settle for a bare mental assent to a set of narrowly configured doctrines and practices. We don't want the weightier matters of the law, such as real faith in God and his mighty works, love for God, fear of God, wholehearted worship of God, self-denial, mercy, brotherly love in the body of Christ, humility, obedience, to get lost in the mix. These are the things that matter. If you've got metrics, our metrics shouldn't be, you know, did you baptize all your kids? That's just a check. Do you use this amount or that amount of water for a baptism? That's just a check. People name their denominations after these things. No, no, we need to go to the core issues, the, the things that matter. Real faith in God, love for God, fear of God, wholehearted worship of God, self-denial, mercy, brotherly love in the body of Christ, humility and obedience to God. These are the things that we, we need. Just, re, just briefly in terms of where the nation is today, Church leaders often settle for their denominational preferences relating to certain baptismal practices, gifts of the Spirit, forms of church government. Some conservative churches devolved further into emphases on methods, slogans, narrow cultural contexts, as in the case of the missional church, the cowboy church, the home church, the liturgical church, the homeschooling church, or the emergent church. All shallow externalisms. Now, don't get to the core issues. More ways in which the conservative churches are attempting their apostasies. These movements constitute a distraction at best, grasping at straws, a loss of core faith. These denominational emphases are superficial and diverted people from core matters. But now, the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Let me comment on that. Thank God the Catholic-dominated court stepped out of the way and allowed the legislatures to act. But 
but still, we've seen the heart of several Supreme Court justices. But here's the point I want to make. I can't see how the heart of the people have changed. Because remember, it's the people that will elect the legislatures, not appoint those Supreme Court justices. We're heading towards elections now. And the elections will determine whether or not Congress will legislate abortion for all 50 states or how the various states will act on these issues. A Pew Research poll conducted in 2022 found 61% of Americans wanted abortion legal in all or most cases. And a Gallup poll found 67% of Americans calling for the legalization of abortion in the first trimester. That's the highest numbers recorded in the last 25 years of polling. In other words, it's gone up and up and up and up and up as far as the heart of the nation. And I don't think it's time for us to celebrate the Roe v. Wade decision until the heart of the people has changed. Discern the times, brothers and sisters. Discern the times. Where are we? Americans are favoring the killing of children. And we've talked about three additional abortive technologies that were not available in 1990. And and these abortive technologies, whether it be the Plan B pill or the IUD or the uh, new RU-486 pill, these these means are killing 97% of the babies. Only 3% are killed by surgical. But who's talking about the IUD? Who's talking about the Plan B pill? Who's talking about the kill pill by mail? All of these are technologies that have enabled 97% of the abortions in America that nobody's talking about. We're concerned about the 3%, but not the 97%. This, to me, indicates the heart of the nation is soured. The heart of the nation is perverse. Our nation is cruising for a bruising. Unless there's repentance. The clouds are dark, very dark, extremely dark. There's no use applying a starry-eyed optimillennialism to the current milieu. A faithless, willfully ignorant, hypocritical people cannot discern the times. And our Lord holds us to this tonight, brothers and sisters. It's, it's, a, it's an urgent word we need to share with our neighbors. We need to share with our friends, our fellow church members. But let's end with this, verses 57 to 59, just ever so briefly. I'm not going to spend much time on this. Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid the very last might. Let's conclude with this. Our Lord is very hesitant about us making judgments concerning other brothers and sisters or neighbors. He, he Romans, or I'm sorry, Matthew 7, verse 1, and other passages, we are instructed to be very careful in making judgments. Be very conservative in making judgments about others. Do not be judgmental concerning others. We're not to do that. Make very few judgments concerning others unless you absolutely have to. This is important for elders as well. Now, of course, the civil magistrate is called to make a judgment. We get that. The elders are called at points to make judgments, but they need to be careful. They need to minimize the number of judgments they make. This this is a principle. We don't look at each other and judge each other. We don't make judgments concerning each other, concerning clothing or music choices or just different things like this. We don't d- avoid doing that. You all know what it is to be a judgmental person. I think we're all tempted to that. But Jesus says be very careful about 
judging others. Extremely conservative about making judgments about others. But rather, and this is what he's encouraging us to do here, make righteous judgments first and foremost concerning yourself. We are to judge what is right and what is wrong concerning our own behavior. We want to strive to see things the way God sees things as pertaining to ourselves. So, so we're, we're looking through the standards of God's word at ourselves. This is why we encourage each other not to just look at all those people committing abortion, but now let's get to the root issue. And the abortion spirit has affected us as well in that self-centeredness and that, that, that you know, all of these other things. So we go directly to that and then we go to the cross of Jesus Christ and, and know that that's why Christ came to die, for our sins. Because we sin the same sins that everybody else has sinned but perhaps in different ways. So we're, we're told here to judge concerning ourselves. Strive to see ourselves the way that God sees ourselves. And the more you judge yourself, this is the principle here in this passage, the more you judge yourself, the less likely you will have to be judged by a civil magistrate and by the elders in the church. So let's just take somebody who, you know, is subjecting himself to the eye of God to the Spirit of God as he convicts. And he, he constantly is crying out, cleanse thou me from secret thoughts. God, open up the, the, the light source of your word upon my heart and determine the things in which I am parting ways from you, in which my motives have been tainted by self or whatever it might be. Lord, please, please, I plead with you that you teach me about myself and my own sins. That's the cry of the believer. And we, we, if we spend an hour or two in our quiet time in the closet asking God to teach us and to, to convict us and to, to point out the way for us and to convict us of our sins, we're not going to have time to point our fingers at others. And, and there's another benefit to that. You, you won't have to be pushed into church courts. Christians do not want to wind up in church courts or civil courts, if at all possible. When courts are forced to deal with issues relating to Christians, this is something of a shame to us. That a church matter of sin, a particular church situation in our denomination, ended up in our church court, and we spent thousands of hours, if not tens of thousands of hours, trying to deal with this. The reason for that is that somebody didn't spend the time in their closet. I'm not pointing any fingers here. I'm just saying... We're not going to wind up the courts if we spend time in the closet with God and we are judging ourselves. We're not going to be wasting time in the civil courts, the church courts. Put every effort into resolving problems between you and your brother or your neighbor. Do everything possible to restitute. Bend over backwards to restore relationship, to make things right without having to resort to the courts. That's the message that Jesus brings to us here. Judge yourselves. Submit yourselves to the judgment of God. And you will not have to submit yourself to the civil courts. The more you judge yourself, the less likely others will have to judge you. The less likely you will have to submit yourself to the judgment of others, whether it be in the formal sense or the formal sense. I mean, you know what? Somebody comes up to you and they said, you know what? I have problems with you. You've got three or four things wrong. You say, actually, I've got a list of a hundred things wrong with me. And if you would like the list, I'd be more than happy to make a copy for you. 
because I've been spending time in my closet for the last six years and God has been working on me like you would not believe. Now you hand that list of 100 issues to them, they're gonna go, oh, well then I don't need to waste time on you. I'll go judge somebody else. You follow me there? Judge yourself and you won't have to submit yourself to the judgment of others. That's the principle Jesus is bringing. And I think the overarching principle is make righteous judgments concerning ourselves, concerning the churches, concerning the nation, by God's word, by the light of God's word. And then we will, at that point, be able to discern the times and to discern ourselves, which is even more important. I think that's the lesson brought to us here by our Lord in Luke chapter 12. Isn't it good? Isn't the teaching of Jesus good? Everybody better say amen. It's good. Amen. It's good. Father, we thank you for the good teaching from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He opens up our hearts. We're convicted, yes. We ourselves, Father, are deserving of the judgment of Almighty God. But, Father, Jesus took that for us. And so we come to the cross of Christ. We throw ourselves on that cross and receive your forgiveness. We receive your cleansing. And and we want to walk in the light more and more. Just to be transparent, to say, this is me. This is my sin. We confess it to you, God. We want to confess more and more of it. Cleanse us from secret faults. Point the light of your word upon our hearts that we might confess more and that we might see more of our sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.